Um, we are continuing in our series through the Gospel of Mark, Servant and Savior. Today we come to chapter 6, and so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter 6, and uh, picking it up in verse 7 today is where we will be as we talk about going with the gospel, going with the gospel. After $1 beer night at a hockey game at the U.S. Bank Arena in downtown Cincinnati, Jake Strotman and his drinking buddies approached a band of street preachers outside the, uh, the stadium. And Strotman felt that these preachers were condemning him, and so he let them know what he thought of their preaching. They were telling me I was going to hell. I didn't understand why they thought they could judge me. Well, some screaming and some cussing was followed by a lot of pushing and shoving, and Strotman somehow ended up at the bottom of a pile, in his words, eating asphalt. <laughs> he pushed himself up with one hand and planted another hand squarely into the face of Joshua Johnson, one of the street preachers. Johnson's face was bloodied, and Strotman was charged with assault. A few weeks later, Strotman appeared before Judge William Mallory. The judge told him that he was looking at 90 days in jail. Well, Mr. Strotman sure didn't want to go to jail. Anything but jail, thought the salesman of windows, sidings, and doors. The judge then turned to the street preacher and said, I'm trying to get something reasonable here. And I'll be honest with you guys. Sometimes in certain places, people don't want to be preached to. Would you agree with that? Mr. Johnson said, yes, he said he did. The judge went on to say, I admire the fact that you want to spread the word of God because I'm a religious man too. Also, the thing about religion, the judge said, I think it's kind of personal. And for me, I don't try to impose my religious views on other people, except for sometimes in this room. <laughs> must, might be, must be nice to be a judge and kind of make your own rules, right? Well, that's an interesting story, and I, I want to ask you this question. Have you ever noticed that some people don't want to be preached to? Well, in our passage today from Mark, we're going to see that Jesus sends out his disciples on a very personal, short-term preaching mission. We're going to learn that when we go with the gospel, some will receive it and others will reject it. So I'd like to invite you to read our text together with me, Mark 6, verses 7 through 13. It's going to be on the screen, and let's read the word of God together. And Jesus called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Amen. The word of God. 
Well, before we dive into the text, it's important to note that this passage contains some unique and very specific instructions for the 12 disciples as they were sent out on this one-time mission. This short-term mission trip was designed to teach and train them as a part of their intense internship with Jesus. They had heard a lot of preaching from Jesus, and now it was time for them to put it into practice. Now, it's important for us to note that the early church didn't view these specific instructions as normative. Sometimes they ministered in pairs, other times they did not. The Apostle Paul financed his ministry as a tent maker at times. Other times, he took local support from churches. So while this particular passage is not um, prescriptive for us, I think that we can draw three distinct principles that we can apply to our lives today. And so as we go with the gospel, we need to remember some will receive it, others will reject it, but we must still share it. And when we go... We need, first of all, teamwork, teamwork. Take a look at verse seven. And Jesus called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. The word for called has the idea of summoning. All right, Jesus is in charge here and he's gonna give them something to do. The use of began gives the sense that Jesus individually commissioned each pair of guys as he sent them out. And that word sent is the same word that we get the word apostle from. It literally means to send one out or to thrust one out. So they were sent with a mission. They were sent by the Lord and they were given clear instructions. Remember that this was Jesus's plan all along. You might remember that he appointed uh, the 12 or recruited the 12 to spend time with him and he had a plan to send them out. Back in chapter three, in verse 14, remember it said that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. And so this is the beginning of that fruition of that plan. And this is a great reminder for us as well. We gather here on Sundays in order that we might go out during the rest of the week. Does that make sense to you? The gathering is only a time of preparation for the real work that is to come when we are sent out to share the good news. Now, it's interesting that Jesus sent them out two by two. He used teams numerous times uh, in his ministry. In in Mark 11, we're going to see that uh, two disciples, you might remember, were sent out to to find a colt for Jesus to ride into the city of Jerusalem. In Mark chapter 14, when we get to the Passover, we're going to find that Jesus sent a a team of two to prepare the meal. Later on, Jesus, after this event here, Jesus sends out 70 of his followers. Guess what? In teams, two by two. I was thinking about that. What is it about this idea of teamwork that Jesus was so invested in? So I just jotted down a a few thoughts here. As we think about teamwork and ministry, it provides greater safety as we go out to support one another. It provides encouragement. It's easier to be encouraged when somebody's with you. It it provides some accountability. If I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it with somebody, I'm more likely to do it than if I just kind of make a plan by myself and then, you know what we do, we make excuses to back out. So there's some accountability. There's a blending of gifts and abilities. 
When two people or more do something together, while one is sharing, the other can be praying. They also can be witnesses to what happens. So it's something that we can do together. And I love how God has made us, each one of us, members of his body, members of the local body here at Garden Way Church. And so we serve together. We are sent out on a mission. As I was thinking about this, I wondered how it worked out when Jesus sent these disciples out two by two. In Matthew 10, when he's recording this event, he actually names the groups of two the guys go out with. And so he says the names of the 12 apostles that Jesus sent out were first Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. So there's the first team. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. There's another team. Philip and Bartholomew, a third team. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. Then James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. And finally, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. So I was thinking, I wonder how Thomas, the doubter, got along with Matthew, the tax collector, who kind of struggled with dishonesty. Or how about Simon? How do you think he felt when he got teamed up with Judas? Nobody wanted to be teamed up with Judas. When I was a kid, I loved the old A-Team TV show with Mr. T. You remember that show? Mr. T. In one episode, I remember there was this evil drug lord, and he hired a bunch of mercenaries to take down the A-Team. But they, did it. There was, they couldn't do it, of course. The A-Team always came out on top. And I remember Colonel Hannibal Smith, played by George Peppard. He, he looks at his defeated foes and he proclaims, now next time you think you want to take somebody out, pal, don't get yourself a squad. Get yourself a team. The A-team. Well, the main point of a team is that a team is a group of people that are committed to one another. They're not just a random group of individuals who don't care about one another. They share the same passion about the same mission. And so, friends, as we think about this, I want us to know this. If you know Jesus Christ, you are on the A-team. It's important that like-minded people and ministries partner together for the gospel preparation, whether it's in the local church, in the community, in our nation or around the world. Two or more serving together can do much more than one person working separately and individually. When Jesus sent out these teams, the last part of verse seven says that he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And so these first 12 were given power and permission to cast out demons and to heal people. They were able to multiply the ministry by serving in teams, and they got to experience the truth of Jesus' words in John 14. Listen to these words. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. And so when we go with the gospel, some people are going to receive it, others are going to reject it. But this first principle is to exhibit teamwork, which leads us then to the next principle. When we go, we must trust. 
We have to trust. That's what's behind the restrictions that Jesus gives the disciples in verses 8 and 9. He charged them to take nothing, nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals, not even to put on two tunics. Well, the staff was like a walking stick and sandals would protect their feet as they walked. But Jesus didn't want want him to bring bread or a backpack or a wallet because he wanted to teach them how to trust. They were to go lean and mean so that they might rely on the Almighty. There's a many wonderful stories about George Mueller. Mueller was a 19th century evangelist in England, and he was known for his care for the poor and especially orphans, and for his complete trust in God's providence. He and his wife cared for more than 10,000 orphans during their lifetime. And it's said that Mueller never once made requests for financial support, nor did he ever go into debt. Many times he received unsolicited food donations, only hours before they were needed to feed the children, further strengthening his faith in God. On one well-documented occasion, thanks was given for breakfast when all the children were sitting at the table, even though there was nothing in the house to eat. And as they said, amen, there was a knock at the door and the baker was there bringing bread Sufficient bread to feed everyone. And as the baker was leaving, the milkman showed up. And he gave them plenty of fresh milk because his cart had broken down right in front of the orphanage. And I love what George Mueller once said. He said, if the Lord fails me this time, it will be the first time. That's a great attitude, isn't it? If the Lord fails me this time, it'll be the first time. You see, Jesus wanted his disciples and he wants us to learn that he can be counted on. You know, the Israelites were in a similar situation in the wilderness for 40 years. And do you remember this little fact about that 40-year wandering? They found out that their clothes and their sandals never wore out. Can you imagine that? Maybe you wouldn't like that because you couldn't buy new clothes for 40 years because the old ones never, ever, ever wore out. But that's what happened. And why did that happen? Listen to Deuteronomy 29.6. It tells us why. That you may know that I am the Lord your God. God can be counted on. The disciples were not only told to travel light, but they were instructed to serve with a sense of urgency. Jesus gives some additional instructions in verse 10. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. Well, that's an interesting little instruction, isn't it? Stay there until you leave. That's what Jesus said. I think maybe what he was talking about was they weren't to hop over to the next house where it might be easier or to the next place where there might be more amenities. And you know, the temptation in life is to seek out our own comfort, isn't it? Or our own position or our own preferences. But sometimes when we're going with Jesus, it might be a bit difficult. And Jesus says, you hang in there until it's time to move on. God wants us to learn the secret of trust and contentment in him. I was listening to a podcast recently where the speaker talked about what he called H3 leadership. H3 leadership. He said, be humble, 
stay hungry, and always hustle. I like that. I was thinking about as the disciples demonstrated teamwork as they went out. They grew in their trust of God, and I'm sure they must have remained humble and hungry in more ways than one at times as they hustled to share the good news of Jesus. And so what about you? How are you doing in this area? Would you say that you are humble and hungry? Are you hustling to share the good news of Jesus with those around you? Are you trusting in the Lord fully? You see, when we go with the gospel, some are going to receive it. Others will reject it. But we are called to serve with a spirit of teamwork and to grow in our trust of the Lord. And then as we do this, there's a third principle I think we can apply, and that is testimony. Testimony. You know, there's a famous quote attributed to Francis of Assisi, and it goes like this. Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Well, I like that little statement, and I've used that many times uh, throughout the years, and it's, it's kind of clever and intriguing. But then I, I got to thinking about this, and I thought, I don't think that it's fully biblically accurate. And that, here's why. Because the gospel must always be communicated with words. In fact, the gospel is the word. Jesus is the word, is he not? And so we cannot proclaim the gospel without words. And so Jesus is preparing his teams. And one of the things he's preparing them for is rejection as they share their testimony. Look at verse 11. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them, Jesus instructs the disciples. Well, that's a pretty graphic display of physical rejection, isn't it? To shake off the dust of your feet. And it's important for us to know the background of that statement. It has its roots in Jewish culture. Remember that these disciples were sent out from, at this point, to Israel only. And so as they were sent out, Jesus said, remember this statement. Shake off the dust of your feet when you're rejected. Well, when a Jewish man or woman would travel outside of Israel into a pagan land, and then they returned to Israel, they would literally stop and shake the dust off their clothes and their sandals. And it was their way of showing that they wanted to keep the contamination of the Gentiles from coming back with them into Israel. Now here's the message, I think. Anyone who refused to listen to the disciples that were sent by Jesus was as unclean in God's sight as the Gentiles were in their sight. You see, God never told the Jews to shake off the dust of their feet. That was something they came up with because they didn't like the Gentiles. So here, Jesus kind of flips it, doesn't he? For Jesus to tell his disciples to do this to Jewish people when they reject the gospel would have been extremely offensive. And I think here's the principle for us. The more revelation that you've received, the more responsibility you have to repent and believe. To whom much is given, much is required. 
is required. You know, Israel has had thousands of years of prophets and preachers and messengers and emissaries from God preparing them for the coming of the Messiah, for the coming of Jesus and the coming of the good news. And so that's a lot of revelation. And with it comes a lot of responsibility. And to reject that message is very, very serious. And Jesus wants his disciples to communicate that to the nation of Israel. But don't miss this point. The disciples were to do this, shake off the dust of their feet, with a broken heart. Not with a sense of glee, serves them right, hope they burn in hell. No, that's not what Jesus was talking about. The act of shaking the dust off was a warning that to persist in rejecting Jesus, to persist in rejecting the good news, was to face certain judgment. And so this was actually a merciful act as designed to shock the Jewish people into the reality that they were headed to hell apart from Jesus. Well, it's important for us to keep in mind that few will receive, but most will reject. That's just the way it is. Jesus, listen to his words from Matthew 7. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Some will open their homes with hospitality, and others will close their fists with hostility. Some will listen when you share your testimony of Jesus and others will lash out at you. Some will accept, and others might assault you verbally. Or, as we saw in that first story, even physically. Well, after being restricted about what they can take with them, and after being told that many will reject them, well, that's a great way to start off on a journey, isn't it, right? Don't take anything, and a lot of people are going to hate you. Now get out there, guys, and go for it. Well, what did these guys do? These six teams of two, they trusted. And they boldly went out and they gave testimony about Jesus Christ. What did they do? They called people to repentance. Look at verse 12. So they went out. They obeyed Jesus. They went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. They were told what to take, where to stay, and what to say. And even after knowing that some would receive and that most would reject, they still went out and preached repentance. Now you might remember that to repent means a change of mind that leads to a change of action. When you can say, I will stop doing the things I should not do and I will begin to do the things I should do, that is what real repentance looks like. And this was not a new message for the Israelite people. Check out what God says way back in, in, in Ezekiel chapter 18 to the, the Israelite people. He says, repent and turn from your transgressions, let iniquity be, lest iniquity be your ruin. And so he had warned them for a long, long time. 
earlier in Mark 1, when we were there, we read that John the Baptist was preaching a message of repentance. And then we also read the very first words that Jesus spoke in the Gospel of Mark in verse 15 of chapter 1. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Jesus' first words. Later, when the church comes into fruition in Peter's very first gospel message on the day of Pentecost, we read in Acts 2 and verse 38 that Peter declared these words, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. And so this message of repentance flows through the Old Testament. It flows through the teachings of Jesus. It flows into the early church and it flows all the way until today. And so Fellow teammates, fellow teammates of the gospel, we live in a day and an age where the gospel message is not very popular. And when it is popular, it is often watered down. To borrow a phrase from the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we live in an age of easy believism. Easy believism. Listen to these words from his book called The Cost of Discipleship. Bonhoeffer writes, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. And those words which he first penned in 1937 during the rise of Nazism in Germany are relevant today more than ever before. They are a stark contrast to the health, wealth, and happiness message that is emanating from many pulpits and podcasts and screens today. This message is popular. And if you preach repentance, you might get punched in the face. Or worse. But verse 13 helps us to see that while the disciples preached repentance, they were also committed to restoration. They were courageous communicators and they were filled with compassion for those around, that were, around them that were inflicted by Satan and by sickness. And we have to have the same attitude. We are called to preach out and to reach out together. Listen to this verse from our text. And they cast out many demons, and anointed with oil, many who were sick and healed them. You see, the disciples learned that Jesus' power extended beyond his personal presence because as they went out, they were now representing him. And so these exorcisms and healings, they served to confirm their message. And likewise, today, as we go out with acts of compassion and care and mercy for those struggling and caught up in the web of sin, our actions carry the same weight as those supernatural acts that were carried out by those early disciples. Our words and our actions are partners together as we trust in Jesus and share our testimony. That's why we do things like in two weeks when we're going to be giving away backpacks and shoes to kids in need. Are we doing that just to give away free stuff? No, we're doing that 
to show the compassion and mercy that flows through Jesus, through his church, and out into the community. We're doing it as an act of care, an act of dignity, with the hopes of being able to follow through with words of truth. On the bottom of your outline today, if you picked one up when you came in, are three action steps that I want to encourage you to get moving on this week. These are ways of thinking that will grow into ways of living for God's people. So let's just consider them briefly. Number one, live with urgency. Have some urgency, folks. Tell yourself every day that you're getting older and that life is but a vapor. Because that's the truth. That's the truth. Don't waste your life. Don't coast. Live with some urgency, not complacency. Because we are called to finish strong. So let's be urgent about God's work in this world. Secondly, do all that you can do to help people get to heaven. Tell yourself that everyone you meet is either going to heaven or hell. You realize that? That's the truth. Your family members, your neighbors, the people that you work with, go to school with, hang out with, every single person is either going to heaven or they're going to hell. There's no in-between. And if Jesus is not the Lord of their life, he is not Lord at all. And so contemplate the horrors of hell and do everything that you can do to help people get to heaven. And then the third thing I want to challenge you with is to pursue your mission. Pursue your mission. See yourself as sent. God has sent you. He's given you a job, a task, a mission, and he has sent you to your family. He has sent you to your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates. Listen to this passage from 2 Corinthians 5.20. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You understand that's our mission in life, folks? Our mission in life is not to pad our 401k. Our mission in life is not to fix up our house. Our mission in life is not to have a good family. Our mission in life, our calling before God is to be an ambassador, a representative of Jesus Christ, sent out. That is our mission. It is God's will for you. If you ever have to sit around and think, I wonder what God's will for me is in this life. Let me just tell you this. It's as simple as that. His will for you is to share the change that came into you through Jesus with other people. If you can verbalize what's changed for you since you came to know Jesus, you have a testimony and you have a responsibility to share that with others. You don't have to memorize all the verses. You don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to be a theologian. All you have to do is step up and step in to the mission. Pursue the mission God has for you. That is God's will. Be his ambassador. He's given us a mission. So let's pursue it together. Now let's pick up the story from the courtroom that I began with. Just before the judge sentenced the man who had assaulted the street preacher, he turned to the defendant and said, I'm open to suggestions. 
Well, with visions of cell bars dancing in his head, Mr. Strotman nearly interrupted the judge and he said, Your Honor, if I may, I would be more than happy to serve a church of your choosing. Well, the judge then turned to the preacher and said, So, for his penance, what if I make him go to your church a number of Sundays? And of course, the preacher loved the idea. And so the judge ended up sentencing Strotman to attend 12 consecutive Sunday services at the street preacher's church for the entire 90-minute service. In addition, he was to make sure that he got the weekly program signed by the minister, and he had to turn those all in back to the judge. So that's 18 full hours of praising and preaching that Mr. Strotman had to sit through. He also had to pay a $480 court fine and $2,800 in lawyer bills. And so that left me wondering then. I wonder if when he went to church, he had any money left to put in the offering. I don't know. But I want you to listen to what Strotman said about his sentence. Three months. That's not that bad. I'm going to listen with both my ears and keep my mouth shut. Then maybe I'll try to sell them some windows. Now, I don't know what happened. I don't know how this story ended. I tried to find it. I could find all kinds of news accounts about this story. It's factual. It's real. It actually happened. But I couldn't find anything about the resolution. Did Mr. Strotman ever come back? What happened? I just left thinking, wouldn't that be an awesome testimony? What if Mr. Strotman was able to start telling people how God saved him through the preaching of the very preacher that he punched. Wouldn't that be a great story? I don't know if that's the end or not. Folks, teamwork, trust, and our testimony. As we work together to share the good news wherever God has placed us. That is our mission. Nothing less, nothing more. So let's pursue that mission together. Let's pray together.